This is a presentation of the Pitch Podcast Network. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Streetwise Podcast. I am your host, Brock Wilbur. I am also the editor-in-chief over at The Pitch. This podcast is an extension of The Pitch, so it makes sense that I be here. Uh, Before we kick off today, just want to thank Terrence Wiggins, uh, who has been our editor for two years now. Thank you. Uh, This is your birthday cake. Um, We should pay you extra, but we don't have money. Uh, we'll we'll get you something nice and Sonic the Hedgehog related in the mail ASAP. Um, How is everyone doing out there? I know the answer is terrible because we went to war, Uh, or (laughs) several people are, or we're involved financially at some point. It's been just just a heck of a day. I'm recording this late on Thursday night. I have just left a screening of the new Batman movie. Uh, it was an early screening for critics. Legally, I can say nothing about it until uh, my review runs on Monday on the site. In fact, based on the reactions of several people at the screening who are critics that write for us, uh, we might wind up running a couple different reviews of the exact same movie on different days this week. It might be a full week of uh, wildly varied uh, reactions to the Robert Pattinson dressed as a bat movie. Um, I'm pretty, I'm pretty good to go. Batman is one of the few things in life that genuinely brings me joy in all of its forms. I have no complaints usually about anything that he's doing in movies or comic books. And even when I feel like they're getting something terribly wrong, there's always something fun. So like, I don't know. The Snyder cut is fine by me. Who cares? Uh, everyone gets to enjoy things. So, uh, I was excited to go to this uh, tonight, but also it was after uh, waking up at 5 a.m. this morning to uh, start uh, mainlining coverage of the events in Ukraine uh, all day, uh, of which I only stopped following to go watch a three-hour movie uh, about violence. Um, and there, there is a, uh, a dysphoria there. Uh, Lily, uh, who works on our team, uh, when they started working at the pitch and we started hanging out as friends, uh, we had a couple of movie nights and at one point they had sort of an offhand comment to me about, uh, why is it that everything that you watch, uh, or want to show us is, is really violent, like over the top violent, like there's a, or, or they might've pointed out that I laugh a lot at violence in things and that that's sort of weird, uh, to come into. And I was like, I, I've never really thought about how much violence plays into that part of my entertainment. I think a lot about the effects of, of violence in media on people. And I've written about, I've written an entire book about that, but haven't really interrogated my own. So to have spent the entire day, like, chewing my tongue off and on the verge of tears worried about things happening to people and then to go find escapism in a three-hour movie where lots of terrible things happen to lots of people for much, much less important reasons. There, There was an odd cloud hanging over the experience, I think, for something that I've looked forward to for 
a year and a half, uh, it was odd to walk out and go like, well, okay, I saw a movie and I'm going back out into a world where things are really bad and it's going to... it wasn't uh, it wasn't the 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 fun little adventure on the side that I hoped it would be, uh, because the the world is real and the world is in a real tricky spot and um, I don't know I I hope that everyone out there is is taking care of themselves through this uh, if you have family that are involved uh, I know that that can be tricky I have extended family uh, in the Ukraine that we uh, got in touch with today and. None of the news there was good, um, but they they're they're doing their best. But uh, the stories of what world the world looks like from their perspective are much much different than uh, what we get through American media, which is much much different than what the European media is doing. Uh, it's one of those weird times where you're sort of looking at a bunch of people uh, on a global scale as opposed to our normal American scale, where you're like. There are uh, a bunch of people that the media is uh, putting into different realities from each other, uh, and it's um, it's a complicated thing to watch and try to figure out where you belong in that ecosystem. Uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> just a bizarre kind of day. Also, as, as just like a sub-note, uh, when we have critic screenings for movies that haven't come out yet, there's always like very strict rules, like in no way can your phone be on. Like usually they even make you put it in a little like paper bag out front and put your name on it, which I don't love doing. Um, because also just in general, after the last two years, I haven't watched a movie not with a phone in my hand for at least part of it. Like we're all just used to it being there now and somebody trying to take your phone away feels weird. Anyway, um, Tonight, I think they got the general impression that um, no one there was going to be turning their phone off. Uh, the The agreement that, like, let's let's all agree no one's going to record and bootleg the film. But also, uh, there are some major world events at play, and no one is about to uh, not allow notifications for the next three hours for Mr. Pattinson. So... <laughs> Uh, that, that was, that was nice. And it was nice to come out into a world where nothing over the top sinister had occurred in that same period of time to make it even weirder of an experience. Anyway, that is my, uh, now forever, um, experience with that film. I will never not be able to say that, uh, it was not, uh, totally intertwined with the day that Ukraine was invaded in 2022, just a bizarre series of events. Uh, Anyway, uh, we've got an interview coming up in this episode with Jason Bailey, uh, who's a film writer. There we go, tying the film to the film. Uh, This is one that I've wanted to do for quite some time. It's a delightful interview. Uh, Please stick around for it. We have Nick's Music Corner, as per always. Uh, But up first, uh, we've got a reading of Emily Cox's Thinking Through Portals from our friend Jason at Stolen Dress Entertainment. Jason, take it away. Thinking Through Portals, Charlotte Street Fellows Spatial Reasoning. By Emily Cox. I wasn't ready to travel into new dimensions on a Tuesday afternoon, but at the Nerman Museum, the artworks of Charlotte Street Foundation fellows Glynesha, Corey Imig, and Kathy Liao created portals that shaped the space around me in new ways. Corey Imig's abstract installations, Glynesha's sacred spaces, and Kathy Liao's massive drawings constitute the portals show housed within the Nerman Museum of Contemporary Art at Johnson County Community College. While promoted as one exhibit, they are truly three separate ones, 
Each artist is given their own space in which to make unique statements to cast us into their idiosyncratic dimensions. Entering the Void Corey Imig's work is visible upon first walking into the museum, filling the lobby space. Open-frame geometric steel sculpture, volumetric form 6, is a dominating emptiness. Its angles and openness make it hard to grasp its shape or even presence. I walked in circles around it, trying to see where and what it is, even though it stood far taller than me. Down the hall, her curtains of blue ribbon stretch diagonally across the lobby space. Linear spaces, blue, appears as a barrier, echoing the sort of trepidation we can experience in institutional buildings, but then upends that trepidation by being an opportunity for play. Imig invites the viewer to walk through the ribbons, to touch them, to be immersed and surrounded by them. The barrier dissolves into softness, lightness. I stood smiling in between the swaths of ribbons, feeling the joy of a kid in a blanket fort, delighted at the specialness of a temporary space constructed just for you. Our expectations of institutional space continue to be disrupted with IMIG's digital media work. A digital monitor hangs on the wall behind the museum's information desk, displaying solid hues. There's a presence in this absence. It feels like an information screen with the information missing. We may find ourselves waiting for something, and then realizing that the thing is already there. The Brightest Timeline Upstairs, Kathy Liao's massive painting, Leo Nian, 2021, translated as Fleeting Time, offers a slip in the multiverse. My breath caught as I was immediately pulled into this scene that is recognizable as a metro platform, but also looks wholly belonging to another dimension, as if the metro platform were submerged in a pool of bright, swirling, pastel-colored paints. I found that I was standing just as the central figure in the painting was standing, their back to me as if one step ahead, as if I could take one step forward and be inside their shoes as if I could take one step forward and be whole inside the painting. Liao has created a portal. I recommend standing in front of it for a good long while. Let yourself be pulled into the portal and slowly notice your surroundings. A child is clinging to your leg. The man sitting over there watches us, his face unreadable. The despondent youth on the train, oblivious and lost in their own thoughts. Her other two works in the exhibit, In Between the Lines, 2019, and Without, 2018, also are staggering in size, though they hold little color. In between the lines is a collage of airport scenes, with zigzagging stanchions and airplanes looming overhead. The emptiness, the waiting, the never-ending lines, the stark gray and white skies above, these all create this sense of the stagnation and uncertainty and staleness of traveling in airports. Traveling Home Entering Glenisha's multi-sensory exhibit Pack Light, I was transported to a sacred space adorned with lush green walls. These are painted with organic forms and embraced by a soft, deliberate soundscape, that includes the background beat of Erika Badu's Bag Lady. Selections from Entozaki Shange's For Colored Girls Who Have Considered Suicide slash When the Rainbow is Enough, and more. Glynesha's artist statement speaks to the importance of space in her work. Through her work, she honors traditions of black domestic spaces as a source of refuge, healing, and imagination. Though these spaces are familiar, the rebirth of these interiors within the traditional white wall gallery is also an act of resistance against the systemic racism that is embedded within museum settings. Eradicating the white walls in this gallery and saturating them with the green of trees and broad-leafed plants immediately signals she is writing against institutional traditions and their inherent hierarchical oppression. The exhibit's focal point is two altars that fill the walls with shelves holding clear glass jars containing a wide variety of contents. Dried herbs, shells, candle holders, dried slices of citrus, turmeric powder, infused oils, lengths of hair, brightly colored fabric, carved mask icons, dried berries, flowers, and chunks of shea butter, items that are all imbued with medicinal, spiritual, ritual value. 
In the exhibit's wall text, independent curator Sylvie Fortin writes, Simultaneously referential and experiential, the multisensory work seeks to create a safe space, a space of healing, identification, affirmation, and celebration, especially for black visitors who may not feel welcome in museums. Entering this smaller gallery tucked away from the larger open-air space of the Nerman feels like entering a womb, a place to be safe, held, and fed. As with viewing any artwork, our lived experience provides a filter through which we understand and appreciate the work, or don't. Pack light reverberated through me powerfully. At the same time, as a white woman, I know that the rituals, lineages, and lived experiences that Glynesia honors and elevates in her work are not mine, that I can never fully understand what it is to inhabit them. Glynesia's graphite drawings and mixed-media collages show domestic spaces, relationships of warm connection, tense dissolution, and absence. The vividly textured collage, oral storytelling traditions, lovingly renders two women on a stoop, one tending to the other's hair. Both faces are calm, with attentions focused inward. They sit in the liminal space of a stoop, both public and private, at ease and fully themselves. They are at home, and they are extending that presence of home into public view. They are in a neighborhood of belonging. They are two black women creating and owning their space in a world that does its best to dispossess them of it. Each of these artists makes us conscious of the space that we exist in and offers new perspectives on how we move through them. Glynesia, Imig, and Liao create portals to new dimensions of their own creation. Dimensions that are ready to teach us. Dimensions that tickle that part of our brain stuck in old patterns and push us into new ones. They show us that new patterns, new movements, new visions are available. This is what good art does. Shakes us out of our familiar dimensions, transports us, and rewrites the spaces we exist in. And now, ladies and gentlemen, as per always, it's time for Nick's Music Corner. Hello, I'm Nick Spacek, music editor for The Pitch, here with this week's local music recommendation. After releasing their debut EP in May of 2019, the creepy jingles have rapidly become one of the area's finest rock and roll combos, and their latest single ably demonstrates why. Trojan Horse Girl comes from the band's upcoming High Dive Records full-length, Take Me at My Wordplay, due out March 25th, and those who have caught the band over the last year or two will recognize it as a staple of the Creepy Jingles live sets. It's absurdly catchy, moving from dark to light to dark again, and as a bonus, there's a new music video which sees the band crafting a theme song for the cartoon featured as part of its plot, meaning you get two songs which will worm their way into your ear. Go check out the latest installment of Cinelocal to view the video, and keep an eye on the Pitches site for an upcoming track-by-track rundown of the Creepy Jingles new album, Take Me At My Wordplay, ahead of its release on March 25th. In the meantime, here's Trojan Horse Girl.
Uh, so today's, today's interview is really fun. Uh, we're talking to Jason Bailey, who's uh, out of Wichita originally, lives in New York City now. Uh, he is a film critic and writer that I've followed for at least a decade now. Uh, he's got a bunch of books out uh, on very specific things like Richard Pryor, the film Pulp Fiction, uh, the the rise of the private eye film in the 1970s. Uh, really, really interesting, well thought out stuff. He has a new book that's out now. Uh, that is getting him uh, attention on massive, massive platforms. He was on Mark Maron's podcast recently. Uh, so he was kind enough to come talk to us about Fun City Cinema, uh, which is a book about the history of New York City as told through one film per decade uh, set in the city uh, at its... It's, it's just one of those that you're just like, the concept, I don't know how it came to you. I don't know how you followed through on it as as well as you did. It is uh, a, tr- a tremendous read. Uh, you can find it at any local bookstore or the normal online places. I highly recommend it. Uh, this is also the first chance that Jason and I, who have been mutual fans of each other for quite some time, uh, to ever speak to each other sort of face-to-face over Zoom. So there's there's a little bit of friend excitement here, especially at the beginning. But uh, here's my interview uh, with Jason Bailey. Hey, Jason, welcome to the podcast. Would you introduce yourself to the audience? Hi there. My name is Jason Bailey, and I'm the author of the book Fun City Cinema, New York City and the Movies That Made It, and the podcast of the same name. Where would somebody find a book by that title? Uh, is that a thing that is accessible to folks? I, I am for uh, the audio medium just holding up a copy of this giant goddamn heavy book <laughs> into the camera right now. Uh, this, this is one of those where you're just like, yeah, releasing a book is cool, but like, have you ever released something that like could be used as a weapon? This is yes. a hefty fucking tome, my yes. friend. <laughs> you could murder another human with it, yes. It is currently available wherever books are sold. You can get it uh, uh, online at your Amazons, your Barnes and Nobles and whatnot, or if you're more independently minded, uh, it's available at fine indie booksellers all across this this land of ours. We, we're we trying to put it into practice at the pitch. It's It's mm-hmm. been too long, but it's just like whenever we're interviewing an author or something, the easy thing is just to link to the Amazon for the book. I was like, what if we stop doing that? And like, uh, <laughs> so we're, we're really trying to focus on doing that thing, which is for 15 years writing online has just been the, the go-to. Like it's a muscle memory thing for this of point. Course. And I'm just like, but I, I hate them. I hate yes. them so much. And like, yes. I write about how much I hate them so much. Why am I... <laughs> doing this so like this has been so great because uh one of the reasons we're talking today like it is a book about new york and cinema uh people might be asking why are we talking about this on a kansas city based podcast fair fair you question or a kansas boy uh I am tell me about growing up in wichita yeah i was born and raised in wichita i spent my first 30 years there Um, And then at age 30, I moved to New York. Uh, And these are the only two places I have lived are Wichita, Kansas and New York City. So, uh, so I've sort of had your extremes. I've had your, your, you know, your, I mean, Wichita is is a decent sized metropolis with lots, lots of conveniences and so forth. But, uh, but it was quite a, quite a shift to go from that, uh, that sort of insular uh, uh, upbringing into the more of a sink or swim sort of situation out here, I would say. My uh, wife has managed to do San Francisco and Kansas City. Uh, yeah. So like a reverse of the Jason Bailey. Uh, there you go. Like, yeah, um, I, I find people that came up in Wichita so fascinating because as a Salina kid, I'm like, you're my big city. 
Like you're where I could, you're where I could go to an airport, right? Uh, and you're where I could uh, visit my favorite chain Tex-Mex place. There you uh, go, and so on and so forth. Which uh, was which was which one? I'm sorry. Oh, Abuelos, my friend. Ah, very good, very good. It, it is the reason for me to fly into Wichita on some occasions just <laughs> to uh, get their thirty dollar plate of eight enchiladas with yeah right I, I i like to punish my there's a reason i have diabetes now it's perfectly <laughs> fine and i blame wichita specifically that's I, fair I, I do love people that come up there because uh i i often find that I have my friends from wichita that are now adults with me somehow had a more repressed um upbringing in terms of pop culture sure. than me and my friends in salina and i wonder if it hit this weird like in between space where it was like well, we were in podunk fuck nowhere. And so we immediately like freshman year of high school, I was like, show me Ichi the killer, like really get right. me into like DVDs that I have to order through the internet that I need a region free hacked Xbox in order to be able to play. I need, yeah. I need something. And then like people in Wichita are like, we have just enough culture here. Like right. I, I, I went to, we Wichita have several for- blockbuster videos. We're all set. Yeah. You, you are actually where I remember seeing my first indie film because um, 28 Days Later was coming out. It was obviously not coming to Salina, Kansas. And so me and the ska band I played in at the time, the stereotypes, two words, because uh, we were very political, um, set up a show where we opened for three metal bands. I no longer remember the venue because it was not a pleasant night, um, but it was an excuse for us to drive without parents to Wichita, Kansas to spend the afternoon watching 28 Days Later, where I will never forget, it was just us in the theater and our bass player, uh, who was the only one amongst us who did drugs as sophomores in high school, got so goddamn high uh, that he spent the entirety of 28 Days Later, my first indie movie, my like maybe the first film I ever saw shot on digital, my favorite thing that I've ever experienced in the theater. He was so high that he just kept um, sucking his fingers throughout the movie with it like there was some popcorn butter on it and he just kept going (laughs) like it made 28 days later so much more disturbing it's a thing that i'm like i I wish i had that audio track these days yeah throw jason boyer on here (laughs) i want to hear a man sucking in my ears throughout the this movie about people eating people but like yes which is a wonderful place too much culture, too, too much culture. <laughs> two, two things. First of all, there's no more early 2000s thing to say than me and the ska band I was playing in. But secondly, <laughs> see, now I have the flip for you because now you live in Kansas City and Kansas City frequently in my college years just got the indie movies well before Wichita did. So I have very clear memories of like, of in, you know, in the mid to late nineties, when I was going to Wichita state, taking weekend trips up to Westport. So we could see like Fargo a month before it came to Wichita. Um, You know, there was, there was just, that was, you know, if in terms of the tiers of the markets of the market for, for indie movies during the nineties indie boom, like Kansas city was very clearly like B or C level. Whereas Wichita was D level. Like we would get it six months later, if at all, maybe we just see it on video. So I do have a lot of really lovely memories of seeing indie movies in that very fertile nineties indie movie period in Kansas city. I, I, Fargo will always occupy a very specific place in my heart because uh, my parents rented it. And it was one, like my, my parents have never understood the term 
uh, Oscar bait or like uh, award bait. And like, it's something my wife tries to explain to them every year. She's like, that's just a award bait thing. And they're like, but it looks good. And it's like, yeah, it's it's supposed to look good. Anyway, the first one I can ever remember as a child that they rented was Fargo because they were like, it just won a bunch of awards. Um, and like, we hear it's a comedy. And so we sat down <laughs> with the VHS and watched it. And it was my first time experiencing a dark comedy. And I think the same yeah. for my parents. And they were like, <laughs> we just got done. And they're like, that wasn't funny at all. And I was never... <laughs> Like the, there is no bigger laugh that I've ever had in my life than just reaching the end of Fargo. And like, yeah. whoa, where was all the hilarious laughter from the crowd? Where was that sitcom movie I was <laughs> Good Lord. So yeah, let's talk about this. Cause this has been, this is one of those where like the audience doesn't know, but like we have been internet friends for like what feels like is going on a decade where we're yeah. just like, supportive pals that I, I read so much of your work it's one of those oh. where it's uh, the the almost parasocial relationship where right. I'm like he doesn't he doesn't know how much of of his life I know about <laughs> his tweets and his writing like I'm I'm really invested in everything going on and so like this it, I know that this is in no way your first book but like to watch you sort of like subtweet the process or to be yeah. visibly going through it for several years it's it's one of those where you get to watch your friend build something cool like oh, the, the yeah. creative version of a tree house and to see the tree house come together and now to own the tree house this wasn't the best metaphor but no no, like, no. It's, I, I totally yeah, yeah yeah no it is a good metaphor and i totally track with you it's yeah. just so exciting and and to, when i got my copy like i I mostly just flipped through it and and we we started by talking about how it's a hefty tome but like it is one of those is like the number of things i've read from friends that are like self-published through amazon including my own things where i'm just like this exists and congrats to them on this like, <laughs> no this is an actual fuck book and like right. the, to watch the world react to it in a way where it was like just suddenly one day it's like by the way i'm going to be on mark Marin later this right. week it was just like holy shit like everyone <laughs> loves jason as much as i love jason this is right. so nice um, right like, oh what is kind. was this what you expected when you got into writing a book about new york cinema or is this one of those where you like winding up sort of like on tour basically sort of like a rock star right. uh like introducing movies and doing podcasts with huge celebrities like i was this what you saw happening? And also, how can I replicate it? I feel like I'm not <laughs> as important as you and I would not. <laughs> I, I, I do not know. I will say that like, I mean, the important thing for me about film books, period, is that the first time I met the great Jim Hoberman, you know, the, 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 the decades long film critic for the Village Voice, who's written some of the finest film books ever written, like real sort of like the books you're aiming to sort of maybe be in the same breath as. So the, the very first time I ever met uh, the great Jim Hoberman, who is, you know, the film critic for the Village Voice for decades and has written all of these terrific sort of merging world history and film history, the kind of books you're like aiming to to sort of be in the same breath as. The first time I met this man, he comes to NYU when I'm a grad student, he gives a lecture because one of these books had just come out and the opening salvo, like his lead was, the first thing you should know is these books do not sell. <laughs> and this was before I had written a book. So I've gone into each of these books with that sort of rattling around in my brain. And in a strange way, it's freeing because when you're not, when you sort of free yourself with the, from the idea that there's a commercial dragon to chase, then you just are trying to write the best book. 
and to write a sure. book that people like you, you know, a book that you would like to read and thus a book that people like you and in your sphere will like and respect and so forth and so on. And so that's the primary goal. And that seems to have happened. And I'm, I'm thrilled with that. Um, the idea that any, you know, this is such a specific, like, sub sub genre of books you know like not just a book you know about film but or even a book about film history but a book about the intersections between real history and film history that sure. for anybody to out of that twitter bubble is a thrill and so the fact that it has gotten some pickup outside of that that it has engaged some some more of an audience beyond me and my friends uh, is great, you know, that's that, but, you know, ultimately, I'm just proud that the book is, is, is liked by people like you, because that's the audience I'm sort of trying to serve first and foremost. So this is always one of those where, like, it's interesting for me to watch you do this, and interesting to, like, finally read the book and see what happens. Uh, film writing, not like any other form of journalism, even other forms of art criticism, because, like, I am, I, I, I've done it for nearly 20 years now, and I have no idea how long it is ever supposed to be or what the <laughs> level of work is supposed to be in there. So when you were like, I, I'm a couple of years in on, on working on this thing, and I'm just like, I don't know, like, when a chapter stops, when do you stop writing about a movie? Because it's always one of those things that, like, you you can do a book about a single movie and to do it like, like, you, I, I used yeah. to think that the subgenre of like this intersection of like history and movies in a place at a time period, like that seems so hyper specific, but I'm just like, you could have done a book about any of these chapters mm -hmm. and to do this is to also do the exact same amount of work. Yes. Uh, I, I think the 33 and a third brain in, in my head, that's just like, you can make a book out of any album is now at this point, like, why would you try to cover genre or a thing? It's right. like, how do you how did you approach writing about each of these movies? What is your process? Right. Okay. Well, first of all, you're right. Like there are literally like entire books that have been written about some of these movies. And actually, like an entire ass book about Midnight Cowboy came out right before this book came out. And honestly, my first thought was not like of competition or whatever. It was like, fuck, I would have really liked to have had that book as a resource when I was writing this chapter. Um <laughs> So also, I mean, when you're talking well, easy about easy writers, uh, yeah, raging, but yeah, there's one just about it that like summarizes an entire genre. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah like yeah. you can go in reverse. You can make it too macro. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, like for me, it's weirdly, it's kind of a mathematical process in terms of of that. Like in terms of understanding how much is enough and when I'm done. In that, I was given a very specific word count by the publisher like do not exceed this. And so the kind of person I am, I'm, I have a lot of Google Docs and a lot of Google Sheets. I'm one of those people. And so the process for me was going in and like taking that number and then breaking it down by chapter and saying, okay, well, I need this. I'm, you know, if I have, you know, a total of X hundred thousand words, then I'm going to need 10,000 words for the seventies. And I'm going to need, I will only need 5,000 for the 20. You know what I mean? And it was just like, about, what was your number? I want to know your number. I can't even remember it off the top of my head. Um, but it was, I mean, it was, it, it was, it was, it seemed huge when I sat down to start. And then once I started writing it, every chapter, it was like, oh no, this is actually a very small number. Because as you say, you're covering in each chapter, you know, the, the, I should mention for people who don't know the book, the, the structure of the book is that it covers 100 years 
of New York City and, and New York City film, it's broken into 10 chapters starting in 1920 and each chapter covers a decade and focuses on sort of like one key movie of that decade that sort of stands in for a lot of what was going on culturally and politically and socially and economically and all of that. So every chapter, dude, I had this experience of being like, I have to cut all kinds of things because I did enough research on each chapter to write at least a small book on each one. Um, so that's kind of what it was, you know, usually in terms of, of the sort of the process process, you know, I've written four books before and each of them were on sort of smaller subjects and done in a smaller time frame. So on those, I spent six to, to nine months doing just all the research. And then I sat down with all of that research and just sort of pounded it out in like a month or so, at least that first draft. And then a couple of months refining it. On this one, because I was working on it for like three years and there was so much more material to cover, it was much more of it. Like I spent four to six weeks researching each chapter and then like a week or two on each uh, on the first draft of each chapter. And then I'd move well, on. So you to have more chapter. of like a family now than you used yes. to when you could just yes, say, like, I am going to lock myself in a room for a exactly month and bang out a book. Uh, yes, that too. Yes, this is my fear as well. It's like when the kid comes, yeah. what happens to my mania? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that, that is the, what I, I can say, that is the only good thing about losing a full-time job. Um, right. When I was starting work on the book, it's like, well, I have time to work on the book now. Um, so it kind of worked like that. So within this scope of the book, which like, and we have gotten into the weeds on this one in a way that I really hope everyone listening just enjoys how much <laughs> fun that I'm having with this, but like, sure. So tackling this by chapter, by decade, and framing it all within a movie, how many false starts did you have where you're like, I think I know the movie for the 70s, and then mm -hmm. you got into it, and you're like, I think it should be a different movie. Like, I, it, 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 that's my fear is, like, there's some decades that I'm like, I'm pretty sure you can go in knowing, like, what movie is, mm -hmm. is right for this, and then there are others, like, the fucking it's buck wild to try and choose what film represents the 90s in right. new york in right. cinema it's right all of them it's every movie <laughs> right for me actually it weirdly uh my false starts were not in terms of movie choice the the, the 10 that i chose at the beginning were all the 10 that i did just because i chose them really fucking carefully wow okay <laughs> based on what I sort of knew about the city history in that period, and also somewhat based on access. You know what I mean? Like uh, uh, in terms of people who I knew, I like I had a friend of a friend who could get me an interview with this person. Um, and that can go a long way when you're trying to sell a book because you're selling it sort of based on who you can, uh, who you can promise that you're gonna talk to. The false starts that I had were more just in terms of managing all the material. Um, because I, you know, it covers a lot of ground and it's very easy to get lost in this much stuff. And I wrote the first three chapters um, and I just knew it wasn't working. I just knew it. Like, oh, I, no. <laughs> it felt like I, it was just like a, a, just a, a mess of, you said in the weeds a little bit ago, and it felt very much like that. It just felt like there's no through line. There's no continuity. No one's going to fucking read this. Uh, and I reached out to my editor um, in a way that I never do. Like I pride myself on being like Mr. Clean Copy Boy, you know, like, and when they get that manuscript at the end, it's like glistening and perfect. 
Um, and I went to him and I said, Eric, I would never, ever do this. But I, if I keep going in this direction, the thing that you get in a year and a half is going to suck. Can you read these three <laughs> chapters for me? And, and just if you have any thoughts about why it doesn't work, I'd love to hear them. And he said, absolutely, send it over. And I sent it over and I waited on pins and needles. And a week later, I swear to God, and this is, I mean, you're an editor. Um, sometimes just an editor can tell you one thing that fixes everything. And he emailed me back and he said, who is your main character in each chapter? And I there said, we are. I don't know. And he said, exactly. <laughs> and he said, you have to have, when you're covering this much ground, this much time, and this big of a subject, you have to have a main character in each of these chapters <laughs> that you introduce on page one who we see, who we follow through the entire chapter and who we leave on the last page of that chapter. And then if we never see them again, that's fine. But they've been our North Star through that chapter. Uh, it can be a, and so each chapter has that. Sure. Uh, it's, you know, sometimes it's a filmmaker, sometimes it's a screenwriter, sometimes it's a yeah. political figure. But in each chapter, there's somebody who we're with the whole time. Um, and that, like, it just, it fixed everything. You know what I mean? I took... Three weeks, I, I spent a week rewriting each of those first three chapters. I found the main character in each one, and then the book was fine after that. So I, I love that people outside of this don't understand, and, and maybe it took me a, a very long time to understand, but when writers get, get together, we don't talk about like how cool it is to be writers. <laughs> we talk about our heroes who are editors that are just yeah. much smarter, more sober people that are yes. like, what if I said one sentence to you and it changed everything that you're doing? And you're like, fuck. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, which is why I'm I'm not like I I took this job two and a half years ago, and it's my first time ever being editor in chief and overall an editor that wasn't just the person that like found people and sure. then passed off the copy editing to somebody. And so there are there are days, especially in the first year, where I was like, I think this is penance. I think that this <laughs> is uh, you know yep. for every editor that was kind of my friend, but then like sent me emails being like how drunk were you when you wrote this? And I'm like, no, in no way would I have reviewed this video game and sent you the draft at 4 a.m. You go fix it, you idiot. Like, yeah. I, I, I get enough now where I'm like, oh, I, yeah. I'm not even going to say anything back because I'm like, I, I earned this. I, yeah. I, I had the time. I really earned it through my behavior. Yeah. Um, it's fine. So like, yes, I, I adore hearing when somebody's like, what if like, it, it, it feels so like Sherlock. Oh, uh, totally. Where where somebody walks into the room and they're like, "What if I had a sentence that cracks <laughs> the code that like all right. y'all been trying right. to do?" And it's yeah. like, "Thank you, thank you, yeah. sir. You are not paid enough, and you saved me a year of my life." Like, yeah, I I adore that. Yeah. Big so, what is it like being a kid from Wichita writing a definitive text about the history of New York City? Like, I, I, I have enough imposter syndrome as it right. is being a Salina kid writing about Kansas City. Right. What is it like for you? <laughs> you know, the 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 most comforting thing that I discovered in regards to that, in terms of researching the book, was that n so few of them are from here. Like so few, you know, we, you know, that I was genuinely shocked by a number of those. Like, yeah. I was like, oh yeah, that's like the guy that you, Scorsese, obviously. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, Scorsese's from, from New York, although from Queens and, you know, Spike is from New York. I mean, like, but when you read about, um, 
especially like that whole like 20s Algonquin crowd, like none of them were from here. They all came from other places. You know, it's that draw, that 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 thing that draws. The Algonquin crowd, crowd is like the most Gatsby thing I've ever Sorry. heard somebody say. Like, I'm so proud of you. Like the Wichita boy has come so far. <laughs> Just to be able to say that. Like, I, I, I couldn't even pronounce the word right now. So like, there we are. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I mean, but it is, it's one of the things that, that I just, you know, like Midnight Cowboy, you know, was directed by an Englishman and was shot by a Polishman, you know, who this guy, Adam Hollander, who I interviewed and became like kind of a friend through the process of the book. Like so much of, uh, so many of the great New York movies are seeing the city through an outsider's eyes that I feel like maybe, hopefully, possibly, I was able to do some of that as well. But also, you know what? Fuck it. I've been well, here like this idea years. that like New York can never be seen by an insider. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it can, but it's a different view, you know. And there are things that an insider knows, uh, and that are sort of part of their nature. But there are things that they take for granted that an outsider doesn't. You know, like one of the most famous scenes in Midnight Cowboy is this, you know, scene where Joe Buck stumbles across this guy just like laying on the sidewalk in front of Bonwit Teller and like everyone just going by and stepping over him and he's like, oh, what the fuck? And that's like directly inspired by a moment that um, that Adam Hollander and uh, John Schlesinger had while they were location scouting for the movie. Like they saw that guy laying there and they're like, well, I guess we got to put that in the movie um, where, you know, that wouldn't phase a Scorsese. So like, that's my hope is that, you know, I I, I feel like I've I've been here long enough now. I've been here since 2006. I've been here for over 15 years now. So I feel like I've uh, become at least partly. You've still your life evenly. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. You, you've got your bona fides. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but I do still have that sort of, you know, wide-eyed, uh, outsider, naive, you know, Midwestern kid about me too. And I think that's important also in sort of in, in taking all of it in and understanding what it all means in correlation with each other. Well, and it's one of the things I appreciate about like following you, especially when you, it's always very exciting when you're like, hey, I'm flying back to Wichita to like host like a Q&A with like a wildly famous person because I myself am now wildly famous in New York City. Like I, it is, uh, especially I feel like in the last decade, kind of important to maintain ties between these places and like what can be very easily imagined as the crystal palaces of the coastal elite and you're right. like no, no no i'm still i'm still this guy i'm still here yeah, yeah. um which is one of the reasons that like i've i've started interviewing like people that are coming through salina kansas on tour like uh lewis black adam yeah. just like i would like to be a representative of that city because i yeah. think i'm good at that but also like i think the city likes that I can do that thing. I, I like that you are the golden son of Wichita <laughs> in this way. Whereas like, it's not just local boy done good. It's local boy done so good that he's writing, again, a definitive text about right. New York City at this point. <laughs> right. And it's just sort of like, I, it's cool. I think Thanks. you're cool. And I think Thanks, what you've bro. done is cool. You Thanks. have a cool life and your Thank life you. has been good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for saying so. <laughs> No one in Los Angeles was like, let's let the Salina kid write about the history of Los Angeles. Like, no, this is, is pretty impressive. Thanks. So what are you working on next? Um, what is it that excites you about 2022? What What is the best movie you've seen this year? Oh, God. Um, Many questions all in one. Answer them right now. We have one minute left. We okay, great. We have, we have time. We're fine. 
um not i have nothing immediate lined up which is great like i like that feeling like you know i've had this book on the runway for like three years we did two seasons of the podcast sort of promote it so that was timed out to so everything sort of finished last fall and so now i'm just sort of like taking it easy you know and just writing reviews and uh, uh watching stuff and you know maybe knocking around a book idea or two but we'll see um and uh, I'm going to South by Southwest if it actually happens this year, hopefully. Um, so I'll go there and I'll enjoy that very or much. Or not. It's or fine. Not. I, or not. It... Maybe it won't. And we'll just roll with that. Um, and the best, mov- the best movie I've seen in the year 2022, like the year that we're a month into, what was the, the best movie I saw last month is what you're asking me? I'm not asking you what was okay. dumped in January. We are okay. halfway through February, my friend. Yes, we have sorry. done a pretty good chunk of the year. Um, let's see. I, 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 I do not know that I have seen any new releases that knocked me out. But, but, uh, mm-hmm. it's virtual Sundance this year. Um, I saw uh, a tremendous documentary called Riotsville, USA which was about um, uh, uh, protest and police uh, and the civil rights era and uh, 68 Democratic National Convention and just all of these sorts of like, you know, historical, but timely because we're still fighting these battles. And it was an incredible archival documentary, like, you know, my favorite kind that are just like, look at all of this insane stuff from then uh, that still matters. And then the best fiction film I saw there was a wonderful movie called Emily the Criminal, which uh, stars Aubrey Plaza as a uh, as a dis, you know sort of disgruntled, broke uh, young woman buried in debt who turns to a life of crime. And I tell you that logline, and it sounds like a comedy. You're laughing. We think, oh, deadpan Aubrey is going to have hijinks. And like the shock of this movie is, it is a very straight ahead, like Michael Mann ish uh, neo noir crime <laughs> picture. And she is a completely credible, dramatic lead in it. It's wonderful. Fantastic. It's a wonderful movie. I can't, it'll be out later this year. I'm sure I can't wait for you to see it. It's wonderful. I, I very much love the number of people in my life that uh, one of my favorite films from last year is uh, The Worst Person in the World. Yeah. Uh, who their easiest quick version was like, oh, it's like a really dark rom-com. And yes. like, that was not, <laughs> <laughs> but it isn't okay like yeah, yeah. you set me up for failure here yeah, yeah. so i i guess maybe the better question instead of what was the best thing you saw this year we should end on asking you um oscars are coming up your best film of last year what did you love because it cannot be the power of the dog <laughs> uh it was oh i liked power of the dog quite a bit actually and it was in my top oh, okay five. But my favorite film of last year was Licorice Pizza. Um, I I vibed with it tremendously, as the, as the kids say. I liked its vibes. Um, I I've been a Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, uh, booster for for years, and I have a very clear clear memory of of seeing Boogie Nights at Cinemas East in Wichita, Kansas, and uh, with, with my with my uh, my best friend Mike, who does the podcast with me now. And at the end, when when like when he took it out and they played "Living Thing," like of us literally like standing and cheering at the end of that movie, and I've been like, I will ride or die for Paul Thomas Anderson for the rest of my life. So I think uh, that was my favorite movie of last year. 
and Alana was my favorite performance of last year. And the fact that she was not nominated for Best Actress is like this year's incontrovertible proof that the Oscars are bullshit. Um, <laughs> like, oh yeah, let's let's make Nick, you know, let's make Nicole Kidman look vaguely like Lucille Ball. That's acting, not you know this tremendously difficult, challenging, sensitive portrayal of a young woman adrift in her mid twenties. No, no, no. Yeah, you kind of sort of look like Lucy. So uh, there you go. You get the nominations um i'm still a bit angry about that so yes there you go i uh 2010's uh paul f tomkins special laboring under delusions is perhaps the reason why i got into stand-up uh and did very bad at it at the start because i just wanted to tell long stories that i yeah. thought were funny and <laughs> if you're not a celebrity tough it, it, it was that and like kevin smith specials that was just like Oh, I think this is what stand-up is, and I hate those guys that are just doing their type five. But like, yeah. then you go up at the comedy store in Los Angeles, and people are like, where are the jokes? I was like, <laughs> I, I, I thought my life was interesting. Paul <laughs> uh, F. Tompkins laboring under delusions. So much of that is about getting yelled at yes. at uh, script readings. Yes. Uh, for for those movies, so, yeah. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> absolutely tracks it's it's one of the things i think about the most uh i think we should shut down here with um tell me the three worst things that you think about abby olchese <laughs> oh um number one see. number one is uh, her satanism i think you know if you if gotta she, start there absolutely she doesn't get the lord in her life i think she's really gonna find herself adrift Number two for Abby Olsess. <laughs> um, could, if, if, if animals, let's, let's, let's stop hating animals. Let's find love in our heart for Jesus and for animals. Uh, and number three for Abayi Olchezi, uh, our, our film editor here, who is just an awful person. What do you got? <laughs> um, also, you know, um, <sighs> I met her at Toronto. Um, I, I I wouldn't say it's a, it's an it's a body odor, but it's just it's maybe something to look into. It's maybe just talk to a doctor. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Pleasant, pleasant, except for the aforementioned Satanism and hatred of animals. But let's look into that. It's it's not even negative. It's just mm. a general concern, concern amongst the community. These are all concerns. We've all spoken about it together. We want sure. the best for you, Abby. We want the best. Jason, where can people follow you and support your work? Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Jason Dash Bailey. It's all one word, all spelled out. Jason Dash Bailey. Uh, again, the book is on sale wherever you get your books. Uh, there's a Kindle edition too, if you prefer. What's to read the name like of that, that book? The book is Fun City Cinema. New York City and the movies that made it and the podcast which is available wherever you get your podcast is also called Fun City Cinema it is a non-fiction narrative storytelling podcast sort of like a little audio documentary where we delve into uh, some of the stories that we got into in the book at greater length and some that there just wasn't room for at all so if you uh, if you like this subject you'll like the pod as well everyone buy the book everyone google uh jason he's an incredibly attractive man <laughs> i cannot believe he gave us his time uh please thank your family uh Will for do. loaning you to us uh thank you so much have a great day <laughs> thanks mark
And ladies and gentlemen, that was the Streetwise podcast. I was your host, Brock Wilbur. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, Please check out the excellent coverage we are doing at thepitchkc.com each and every day of the week. Uh, Please support our writers. Uh, Everybody likes it when you just pop in and say, hey, good job. Uh, if, If you don't have a couple of bucks, you can throw our way in the membership program. A kind word here or there on social media goes a very long way, I promise you. Um, Otherwise, please take care of yourselves out there. Please be good to each other. Pitch in and we'll make it through. Bye, 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 bye. This was a production of the Pitch Podcast Network. The Pitch is Kansas City's independent source for news and culture. Check out thepitchkc.com to see more podcasts from us, including information for how to subscribe to The Pitch or become a sustaining member. Story ideas or feedback? Write to tips at thepitchkc.com. Pitch in and we'll make it through.